and welcome to History Zine number four. I see from the download figures there are quite a lot of you downloading this podcast at the moment. I must admit I'm shocked and stunned by the take up on this podcast and absolutely delighted. Thank you everyone for listening in and I hope you'll stay with me as I meander through the various corridors of history. I'm going to start off with a review of two podcasts this week and they're It's a bit of an unusual one, is this. Uh, Up till now, I've been reviewing podcasts that I've absolutely adored. These are two podcasts that I'm not sure of. They're podcasts that sometimes I will find that I like them, sometimes I will find that I don't. But both of them have uh, definite problems on occasion that I think can possibly teach me something. Uh, The first one I want to look at is one called History Podcast by a chap called Jason Watts. And this one has been going for quite some time. There are over a hundred of them now. And there are some that are very, very good. And there are some that are not so good. I I listened to the very first one. The very first one about the only nuclear bomb ever dropped on America. And you can tell he's quite invigorated by the subject. He's quite delighted to be doing it. And that really comes across in his delivery. That really comes across in how he tells the story. But I compare that with the last one I've listened to, which is a podcast about Elizabeth. This is Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, the last of the Tudor queens. And this has been written by somebody else, and he's doing the narration. And you can tell he's reading it, and it's a bit, it's a bit flat, I must admit. Now, I know with history podcasts in particular, you have to really script them because you have to be able to tell people the dates and when things happened and the order in which they happened. So you need all your information to hand. But with this being written by somebody else, they're not his words and you can tell he doesn't really feel them and possibly doesn't have a feeling of excitement about the subject. I contrast this yet again with the 100th episode of History Podcast, and the 100th episode doesn't cover a particularly history subject. He's just talking about the podcast, celebrating 100 of his podcasts, and it's a two-way conversation between him and his partner. This is actually a delight to listen to. They're, They're relaxed and they're happy, and they're talking about what they've done and what they're going to do, and it's really a pleasure to listen to. The audio quality is good, and there are quite a few of these that are good. I hope he does more of his own podcasts rather than reading from other people's scripts, or if he does read from other people's scripts, to read them a few times and get to know them and become involved with the story. So that's History Podcast by Jason Watts. You'll find it at historyonair.com. I'll put a link in my show notes at historyzine.com. The other one I want to mention has what's probably the opposite problem in that I don't think it's scripted. It's Parnell's History Podcast. And he looks at subjects that interest him, subjects that are often quite controversial. The latest one is the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he talks about how it started, he talks about where it's gone through different times in history. Obviously, it's a long, long conflict that has covered 
a long period of time. But it isn't structured. It doesn't follow it doesn't follow it chronologically or it doesn't follow it thematically. It's just a wonder here and there and everywhere about the subject. Now there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of good stuff. There's a there's quite a decent argument going on in there. But because it doesn't have a structure, it's quite difficult for the listener to grab on to what's going on and to become involved in what's going on. So that's my capsule review of these two podcasts. That's History Podcast with Jason Watts and Parnell's History Podcast. I'll put links to both of them in my show notes at historyzine.com. And I hope from these two that I can learn something. I have been scripting so far and adding little bits of unscripted material in between the scripted material. I think I'm going to aim more for laying it out in a sort of PowerPoint kind of way where you'll put a few headings and I'll try to talk about my subjects through these headings. So we still get the structure, but I won't get the reading from script problem. And now for my bit of linguistic trivia. I'm intending to get married next year and I remember hearing about something called the bands of marriage or reading the bands or publishing the bands. And I wondered, you know, is this anything to do with me? Is this something I should think about? It's a a very archaic thing, but does it still hold for today? And it seems it does still hold for today in England anyway, but only if you're going to have a church wedding. And reading the bands is something that has to be done in church. It's under something called the provisions of Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act. And it says, A marriage is only legally valid if the reading of the bands has taken place or a marriage license has been obtained. The bands are required to be read aloud in church over a period of three Sundays prior to the actual wedding ceremony. Bands must be read in the home parish church of both parties to the marriage, as well as in the church where the marriage ceremony is to take place. Where this is different, omissions of this formality renders the marriage void. So, this is to stop couples suddenly eloping and getting married. And I suppose, thinking about it, this is maybe why couples in England would run away to get married in a place called Gretna Green, which is in Scotland, but just over the border in Scotland. So I presume there was no reading of the band's requirements up in Scotland. So it looks like, for my marriage, I won't have to be doing the reading of the bands thing, seeing as I'm not intending to get married in a church. But yes, absolutely fascinating that this is still in place today. Some of our laws, some of our... Some of our laws, some of our customs in England are still quite archaic and quite strange. So, in summary, that's the reading of the bans, and the bans were read out so that anybody who knew of a lawful impediment as to why these two people should not get married would be able to object in this time period. And now on to our feature presentation, number four in our series on the War of the Spanish Succession. Hello and welcome to this, the fourth in our series on the War of the Spanish Succession. Thus far we've been concentrating mainly on Prince Eugène in northern Italy there. I want to pull our focus back now into Western Europe and I want to take a closer look at John Churchill who is later to become the Duke of Marlborough. So to introduce John Churchill to you I'll just push our narrative on just a little bit more. 
We're now in 1702. The fortresses that used to protect the United Provinces are all now in French hands. So forces are being rapidly mustered to defend against the coming assault. And to lead the forces of the Allies, you're going to need a general, a general over all the forces. Obviously, they'll have their immediate generals, but there's got to be one man who pulls it all together. And who can this man be? Well, there's quite a few contenders. And if you think about it, this is it's, it's a position that's going to cause a lot of problems. The leader of all the individual armies from the individual nations, they're all going to have their own ideas about how they want to fight the war. So an overall leader is going to have to have, it's going to have, to have the respect of each of the individual nations involved. And to get that respect, he's probably going to have to be a prince or a king. Now, William, that's William III of England, or William the Dutch Stadtholder, had just recently died. So he would have been the obvious choice, but he's no longer there. The person on the English throne now is Queen Anne. And she wanted more than anything else in the world her husband to be leader of the Allied armies. Now, her husband was Prince George of Denmark, so he had the qualifications as far as royalty is concerned. But he had a bit of a reputation, and it wasn't a good one. I mean, there's, um, there's been occasions such as when Prince George switched sides in the Glorious Revolution, that's where William III invaded England at the invitation of some of the English noblemen. So when Prince George switched sides there, James said that losing just one ordinary trooper would have been more of a loss than losing Prince George. Another quote I've seen about him is that he is one of nature's colonels, brave enough under fire as a young man, good-natured, harmlessly stupid, and now corpulent and asthmatic. So, really, he's viewed as a fat, wheezing blockhead. So, much as Anne loved him, and much as Anne wanted him in that position, and much as Marlborough tried to push her wishes at The Hague, they were never going to accept him. I mean, Marlborough even threatened that England would pull out of the war entirely unless they got Prince George's leader. And the United Provinces said no. Can you even begin to imagine how bad they must have thought he was to have risked losing England as an ally in the forthcoming war? So there we are at The Hague. The negotiations are going backwards and forwards. They're going nowhere. There are other applicants, of course. There is Frederick of Prussia, who you would have thought stood a good chance. But no, he didn't get it. And while all these negotiations are taking place, the French aren't sitting still. The Dutch General Ginkel is out in the field, and he has so narrowly escaped defeat at the hand of Marshal Bouvelet. Apologies to any French speakers there. My French pronunciation is terrible. If anybody wants to send me an MP3 with, with some correct pronunciation for the French names here, I would be delighted to receive it. Just send it along to jim at historyzine.com. Anyway, onwards. Ginkel had just managed to escape and ran for it with his army to Nimwegen. And there he sheltered under the giant guns at Nimwegen while Boufflet stood off at some distance. 
it didn't go all the way of the French forces, as Kaiserswerth was captured just five days after the escape of Ginkel. Marlborough, noting the movements in the field, quit the negotiations at The Hague and went to take up his position as Captain General of the English forces at Nimwegen. Marlborough had not gone far when a courier caught up with him and told him that they had decided not to appoint an overall commander, a sort of allied generalissimo, but that they would recognise Marlborough as being at the head of the allied armies. Now, this sounds like such a, a weasel statement. It looks like they're saying, we couldn't decide on anybody. There were arguments about everybody. So we're going to call you overall leader. But, of course, you won't really be overall leader. So, hey-ho, there's a real poison chalice for the Earl of Marlborough there. I mean, there's so many caveats on this appointment. There are so many things he can't do without the approval of various Dutch advisers. It looks like this is one of those... Situations. I mean, I, I presume you probably heard the phrase designed by committee. It usually infers that something is such a collection of compromises as to be virtually useless. And here we have something much in the same vein. We have a decision made by committee. There is effectively no decision at all. However, as we shall see, the genius of Marlborough manages to make it into something that will work. So... Marlborough takes this news, carries on to Nimwegen, and takes command of his troops there. He immediately launches himself into meetings, negotiations, politicking, all in an attempt to try establish this rather precarious position that he has, and to try to make this position into something that is useful and workable. Now, at this stage... I mean, we've come in here, we've said that there are all these candidates for leader of the Allied forces, and then I've sprung the Earl of Marlborough, man of so many names. Um, let me get this right. Um, John Churchill is his name. He's made the Earl of Marlborough. He's the Earl of Marlborough at the moment. Later on, he will be made Duke of Marlborough. So, from here on, unless we're talking about him as a young man, from here on, we'll probably refer to him as Marlborough. Now, who is this Marlborough and why should he have taken precedence over so many princes? Now, I want to talk about the Duke of Marlborough, but I'm finding it incredibly difficult. That's one of the reasons that this particular episode has taken so long to do. Because so many times I've approached talking about the Duke of Marlborough and wondering just how I could do it uh, without, you know, taking hours and hours and trying to sort out the essence of his story, what it is I can convey to you. And I was talking about this to my partner the other day. We'd, we'd just been to get a Christmas tree and we were walking back and we just popped into the pub and we were sat there and I'm telling her of my woes that about this episode and how, how, how much trouble I'm having trying to do this. And she says, well, why don't you just try to tell everyone what it is that you find so fascinating about the Duke of Marlborough, what it is that entrances you, what it is that excites you. And... I must have looked a bit nonplussed. So she says, well, tell me now. And uh, so, you know, I relaxed, my pint of beer in my hand, and I began to tell her what it was about the Duke of Marlborough I found so intriguing. And I think I talked nonstop for about 15 or 20 minutes. And at the end of it, she says, yes, that's it. 
So, tall order though it is, I mean, slightly different surroundings here, uh, I will try to sort of recreate that for you and share my delight and what excites me about Marlborough rather than try to tell you a comprehensive story. But before I get on to telling you how I feel about Marlborough, I want to read you a little extract from Winston Churchill's book on Marlborough in the preface here. And it says... He commanded the armies of Europe against France for ten campaigns. He fought four great battles and many important actions. It is the common boast of his champions that he never fought a battle that he did not win, nor besieged a fortress he did not take. Amid all the chances and baffling accidents of war, he produced victory with almost mechanical certainty. Even when fighting in fetters and hobbles, swayed and oppressed by influences which were wholly outside the military situation, he was able to produce the same result varying only in degree. Nothing like this can be seen in military annals. His smaller campaigns were equally crowned by fortune. He never rode off any field except as a victor. He quitted war invincible and no sooner was his guiding hand withdrawn than disaster overtook the armies he had led. So there you have it in a nutshell. From a descendant of Marlborough, Winston Churchill, who was Britain's war leader during the Second World War. And Winston Churchill there lays out Marlborough's record, and the record speaks for itself. Marlborough is criticised on so many fronts, but nothing, nothing can argue with that record. And I think that's where the, the root of my admiration lies, in that he was an exceptionally talented man, with an exceptional attention to detail. He knew his goals, he went for his goals, and he got them. I mean, time after time, he set an impossible task, and he buckles down to it, he works long, long hours... And somehow he makes it all work. I've mentioned criticisms there, and there are so many criticisms. I mean, in his youth, he's known as a playboy. And later on, he is criticised for not being a playboy, for being too dour and too serious, and for taking money too seriously. He's criticised time and time again from getting getting his promotions and such like, from getting help through his relationships, such as his wife, who was a good friend of Queen Anne. So he's criticised time and time again for getting help through these relationships, for using them for his own benefit. And it seems quite bizarre to be criticised for such in such a time. This is a time after the Civil War. This is a time after the restoration of the monarchy. Uh, this is a time of plots, of scheming, of stratagem. We've got Louis XIV's court, where the, there's so much backbiting going on. It's, there's so much politicking going on. It's, it's quite a vicious, gossipy time. So maybe, maybe that's where all the criticisms come from. Gossip and spreading rumours about one's enemies was just a natural way of life. It was part of court life, certainly, throughout the 17th and 18th century. And I have to wonder whether maybe we're in a transition period here. We've gone from a period where everything came from the king, 
well, you know, the vast majority of favours and court positions came from the king. And the king is losing some of that power. He's losing, the king is losing some of the ability to be able to give out these positions as parliament gains more and more power. So what little the king or queen can give out is fought for much more desperately. So Marlborough is very much a man of his time. He is involved in all in this rumour mongering. He's involved in the gossips, the scandals. To Marlborough, that would be just diplomacy. To us, or to people in later times than his, it might be considered just all a bit scandalous and grubby. But to give you some kind of framework to hang all this on, I'll give you a sort of potted history of Marlborough himself. Now, he's born 26th of May, 1650. He's not born of a rich family. It's quite an intriguing family, actually. His father was called Winston Churchill. And his father had had the misfortune to fight on the wrong side during the Civil War. His father had fought on the side of the Royalists and had been fined quite heavily for being on the wrong side during the Civil War when the Parliamentarians won. There's a, an amusing aside here. His, his father actually had a, a family motto, and the family motto was Fiel Pero Desticado, which I actually thought was Latin. I remember going round um, Blenheim Palace, and the guide there pointed out as, I'm sure they pointed out as Latin at the time, but uh, I put it out to uh, my colleagues on LibriVox.org, and Caris Theona came back to me and told me it's actually Spanish, and she gave me some hints and tips on how to pronounce it. So I hope I've got it somewhere near there. And apparently it means faithful but unfortunate, which is a, a wonderful motto, I think. Now, his father had had the good sense to marry into a family that fought on the right side during the Civil War, so was able to at least have a roof over his head in Ash House. He wasn't entirely welcome there, but he was family, so they felt they had to look after him. Unfortunately, Ash House was in a bit of a state, as that had been partially burnt down by the Royalists during the Civil War. These feuds and disputes hanging over from the English Civil War that often involved compensation payments dragged on for years and years after the Civil War. So we have this enmity, this... Hatred still carrying on for so many years. But somehow, our Winston manages to build a family and, and find places for some of his family at court, such as Arabella, who actually becomes, well, later on, she's only young at this time, but actually becomes the mistress of James, Duke of York, who is the brother of the king, Charles II. And James eventually becomes James II of England. Later on... John Churchill himself gets to go to court and finds himself a position in James's entourage. Of course, everybody assumes this is Arabella's influence, and maybe it was. But frankly, that's the way the court worked in those days. In fact, he has another relative at court who is also going to be quite influential. This is Barbara Villiers. And... Barbara Villiers is a mistress of Charles II and a cousin of John Churchill's. Now, at this time, they, they're just good friends. Um, John is only quite young. I think he's 16 at this time. So maybe not of real interest to Barbara Villiers as a man. But he becomes an ensign and is sent away to Tangiers 
to fight against the Moors. When he returns to court, he causes quite a stir. He's, he's grown in stature, he's bronzed, he's beautiful, and a great favourite at court, and becomes a lover of Barbara Villiers, Duchess of Cleveland. And there are a few interesting bits of gossip from around this time. Uh, one is that he was actually in the bedroom, in Barbara's bedroom, and the king was coming along to the bedroom, and and John Churchill jumps from the balcony to save what was left of her honour. And for this feat of valour, she is supposed to have awarded him £5,000. It seems quite likely this is probably true. Certainly, he got a large sum of money, and he invested it and drew a regular annuity of £500 a year from it. Yet again, he's criticised for this, for really, well, I suppose partly for taking the money and partly for investing it, which is such a dour thing to do, or was considered such a dour thing to do. Uh, I think the attitude was he should have been more flash with it. He should have spent it on grand and luxurious things instead of uh, investing it and drawing a yearly wage. But to someone who has grown up in such sort of genteel poverty as John Churchill had, uh, that security that that provided was so important to him. And there's another bit of gossip where he didn't manage to save her honour. This is possibly true as well, but there's not as much evidence for this one. Is that he is supposed to have been in Barbara's bedroom once again. Yet again, Charles comes to the bedroom. He's been tipped off by one of his lackeys. And he knows for sure that John Churchill is in there somewhere. He says to Barbara, would you get me some sweets? And sure enough, Churchill is hidden in the sweet cupboard. Oh no, I've lost the key. Open it up, or I'll smash it down, he says. Anyway, she opens it up, and there, of course, is John Churchill, who throws himself at the king's feet and says, Oh, I'm sorry, you know. And and Charles, ever ready with his vicious wit, says, It is okay, you are a rascal, but I forgive you, for I know you do this only to earn your bread. Which is, of course, a dig at both him and at Barbara. Whether this is true or not, I just don't know, but it makes for a good story. It does give us some indication of, well, of the court at the time and of how John Churchill is viewed at the court as a sort of um, social climber and using a beautiful woman such as Barbara Villiers to climb that social ladder. But enough of his amours for now. Um, we have John as a fighting man, yet again in yet again in a war that I mentioned in a previous episode, the Franco-Dutch War, We have John Churchill fighting again, partly in the Navy, and later on in the Army, where we find him in the Siege of Maastricht in 1673. He is what is called a gentleman volunteer at that time. It's so wonderfully bizarre, this. this, uh, You've got these sieges where the king would come out, I think the king may have been at Maastricht, I think he was, and the king would come out and other great nobles would come out and they'd all want to be seen by the king and so they'd all parade in front of him, you know, hello, you know, I'm so-and-so and and, and, uh, then try to do something heroic in front of the king and such like. It's most bizarre. And, of course, our John Churchill does manage to do something heroic. We've got a Dutch counter-attack comes out and John is very much involved in repulsing that counter-attack with uh, Monmouth. Uh, Monmouth is the Duke of Monmouth, a relative of King Charles II. 
and, surprisingly enough, a chap you might have heard of called D'Artagnan. Now, this is the actual D'Artagnan from the Tales of the Three Musketeers. This is the time of the Three Musketeers and the man in the Iron Mask. It's all happening around now. Or, the stories were based in these times around now. This is the late 17th century, the time of Louis Fourteenth, the time when France is at the zenith of its power. Until, of course, the next zenith, when Napoleon takes over a hundred years later. It's, it's also in this year, and the following year, that he gets a chance to fight under the great French Marshal, Marshal Turenne. And many historians have suggested that this is possibly where he learned most of his fighting strategy. This is possibly where he became a great general himself. Because at this time, there is no finer general than the Marshal Turenne. Who actually noticed John Churchill and thought him a fine man who referred to him as my handsome Englishman? So John Churchill has stayed in France even after England had pulled out of the war, but he does come home eventually. And when he comes home, he falls in love with someone called Sarah Jennings. And there is, of course, much wooing goes on and many, many letters are passed between the two. She doesn't trust him at first. She's heard about him and heard about his reputation and really wants nothing to do with him. But eventually he manages to convey to her the sincerity of his feelings and eventually they will get married. Sarah is going to figure very heavily in Churchill's story later on because Sarah has a very interesting relationship with Anne who is going to become Queen Anne. She's just a princess at the moment. And from their childhood, Anne develops something of a schoolgirl crush on Sarah. Sarah is very outgoing, she's very popular, very beautiful, all the things that Anne is not. And all through their life, they're going to maintain this relationship. There are many historians have wondered, maybe, was there a lesbian relationship going on here? I'm not sure there's actually any evidence for this, even though the letters between them are quite passionate, particularly on Anne's side. And much of Marlborough's influence in later times is going to be through his wife and through the Queen Anne. But that's still some distance away. We've actually still got Charles II on the throne at the moment. Then there'll be his brother, James II, after him. Then there'll be William and Mary. Mary will die and there'll be just William. And then there'll be Queen Anne. So we're back in 1675 now with John Churchill. And he's getting more and more involved with politics. He is very much the right-hand man of James, Duke of York, at this time. James relies on him for so many things, so many diplomatic missions. And by 1678, we see him as part of the negotiations for English participation in the coming campaign against France. He will actually meet William here, William of Orange. And we get the impression that both men were quite taken with each other. Now, England, of course, does join in this war with the Dutch and the Spanish against France. But, unfortunately, Churchill doesn't get to play a great part militarily in this campaign. Now, it seems that Churchill's star is rising now. He's, he's being involved in many more diplomatic missions. He's at the centre of everything at the court. Another obstacle appears, and this obstacle is actually his patron, the Duke of York. Now, the Duke of York, James, is Catholic. 
And, of course, this is a serious problem in a Protestant country, a country that is only a 100 years after the Reformation of King Henry. There has been so much turmoil since that time, and the, the spectre of a return of the Catholic Church is always there and is the great bugbear of the time. And there are more plots or rumours of plots and accusations flying around at the moment. And so Charles, actually showing some common sense for once, sends James away to Scotland while everything quietens down. And John Churchill obviously goes away with him. Now it seems that things must have quietened down because there had been this worry all the way through Charles's reign that James might ascend the throne next. And James, being Catholic, is the last thing they wanted. It brings back all that turmoil, all that fear that England could once again become a Catholic nation. But I don't know what happened, but Charles died 1685 and James takes the throne and that doesn't seem to be much of a problem at first. I mean, everybody expects there to be a problem. James II, a Catholic king coming to the throne, is disastrous in so many people's eyes. And the Duke of Monmouth, who we mentioned earlier in the Siege of Maastricht, chooses this moment to start a rebellion. Because he, he obviously assumes that this is a good moment. Monmouth is a Protestant, and he raises Protestant troops. And of course, troops are sent against this Protestant army. And you would have thought maybe Churchill would have led these troops. I wonder if James didn't entirely trust this Protestant general here. And maybe this is why he put a Frenchman in charge of his troops, a man called Feversham. Churchill is obviously not pleased about this, but he has a detachment of troops and he takes them straight down there to Harry Monmouth's army and generally snipe away at their heels. He hasn't got enough troops to take on Monmouth's army, but he has enough to make it uncomfortable for them, to make it difficult for them to get supplies. And afterwards, Monmouth says that that this harrying never gave him a moment's peace and could have played a large part in him not being able to raise as much of an army as he expected. Eventually, the rest of the troops arrive and Monmouth is defeated at the Battle of Sedgemoor. And I think at this point, perhaps James gets a little too cocky. He's ascended the throne. There has not been a great deal of fuss over it. There has been a rebellion. The rebellion's been crushed. Perhaps he thinks he's sitting pretty now. Perhaps he thinks there's no problem. Because he starts, starts appointing Catholic officers in the army. He starts appointing Catholic ministers. But this is absolutely illegal. He uses what's called the royal prerogative to get round the law. And obviously he's going to win no friends in Parliament with this sort of behaviour. So we get into another era of secret negotiations, of much going on behind the scenes. And a lot of the negotiations are with William of Orange over there in the United Provinces. And on the 5th of November 1688, William lands in southern England with a Dutch army. James sends an army to intercept it, but on the night of the 23rd, 24th of November, John Churchill, with 400 officers and men, defect to William's army. This opens the floodgates for so many others to defect also. 
And we have what has been called the bloodless revolution or the glorious revolution. And really, it was glorious in that almost no one died. Can you imagine a revolution with no deaths? Oh, if only they were all like this. So, William ascends the throne... And there's the usual bunch of arguments amongst the various politicians and aristocrats. But eventually they decide on William and Mary sharing the throne. Mary is actually a steward and has a very good claim to the throne herself. And so giving them the crown as a joint thing seems a good compromise. Oh goodness, I've run rather longer on this than I intended. Um, I tell you, I'll very quickly bring us up to date. It's such a shame. It's, it's a life full of so many incidents uh, and so many interesting and exciting things. But um, I'll just quickly tell you, but i better just wrap it up quite quickly. So William has come to the throne and of course he declares war on France, 1688. Churchill is involved in this war. William trusts him absolutely to begin with. And Churchill distinguishes himself and he fights in Ireland as well. There's yet another Jacobite rising in Ireland. And cost the French are supplying money and troops to that. Then later there's rather a severe falling out with William. There's, he speaks out against William as do many of the ministers at the time. Complaining that so many of the plum jobs were going to Dutch officials and Dutch generals etc. There's also rumours about Churchill communicating with the Jacobite court at Saint-Germain. And this actually leads to John Churchill being locked up in the Tower of London. And this must have been terrifying for John Churchill. He must have been expecting to be executed at any moment. But fortunately he was acquitted, so one must assume there was no real evidence. However, there's still the falling out with William. He's sent away from court, is John Churchill. He's, he has to sell all his officers, and he has no real influence at this time. Now, Marlborough was out of favour for some time, but for whatever reason, eventually he becomes yet again a trusted confidant of William III of England and is involved in the machinations to pull back together the alliance to face off against the French. In fact, when William dies, Marlborough is left with the responsibility of maintaining that alliance. And perhaps this massive involvement with the foreign policy of England is, is one of the reasons why they do decide to make him Generalissimo, in charge, sort of, of the entire Allied forces. And so I'm going to leave it there for this week. I've gone on longer than I expected to. But I hope I've given you some sort of image of, of the man, of the character of Marlborough himself, that he, he is such a fully rounded character. There are so many facets to his personality. There are so many sort of tricky little obstacles he had to overcome. But he, he has this sort of steady, stubborn nature. The, it, nothing seems to fluster him nothing phases him he just he has his goals and he keeps plodding on to get those goals and this is going to serve him tremendously in the coming war so right i really will end it there uh come over to the blog and leave a comment that's historyzine.com and look forward to talking to you again bye for now